Hello, my name is Kath Carno and I'm a neonatal intensive care specialist in Sydney, Australia. My practice is in the Grace Centre for Newborn Intensive Care and in neonatal retrieval as the Deputy Director of NETS New South Wales. My research focus has been in neonatal ultrasound in retrieval, where we take point of care ultrasound on the run to assess the hemodynamics of critically ill newborns, specifically focusing on the baby with significant oxygen requirements. Today we are going to discuss congenital heart surgery in the neonate and joining me in this conversation is Dr. Yixie Orr. Yixie is one of about a dozen paediatric cardiac surgeons in Australia and the only female. She trained in Sydney and Perth in Australia and was actually acknowledged by the Australian Medical Association as the trainee of the year in 2011. She then further honed her craft in the USA at the Texas Children's Hospital and has now been a consultant paediatric cardiac surgeon in the Sydney Children's Hospital Network since 2014. During her leave from the hospital, Yishi attends open heart international trips to various underprivileged countries to train and partner with local teams to help them perform paediatric cardiac surgery in a low cost and sustainable fashion. She is one of the busiest people I know and it is a real coup to get her to stop for a minute and do this podcast with me. So welcome, Yishe. Thank you for the very kind invitation and also for the privilege of being a part of this. I think all the cross-collaboration that we do these days is very, very useful. Great. So Yishe, today our goals are to share a little bit about our knowledge and understanding of the diagnosis and surgical management of congenital heart disease. I thought we could start with a bit of background to introduce you more to the audience. For listeners, it's probably worth acknowledging that the neonatal heart weighs approximately 20 grams and is about the size of a walnut. Surgery on this organ is a truly extraordinary skill. So could you please start by telling us what first made you want to become a paediatric cardiothoracic surgeon and has it panned out as you'd planned? (laughs) So when I was a medical student, I knew I wanted to do surgery and uh, of all the surgical types I've been exposed to I hadn't done much cardiac surgery so I did a bit of that as an elective student and I was absolutely hooked Um, mostly because of the functional effects you can create by fixing someone's heart and I saw that mainly in adults but as I went along I started to see a little bit more of uh, pediatrics and I thought the the complexity of what's required and the challenge really I, I think is something that drew me to it, but also the fact that uh, in the context of pediatric cardiac surgery, you're essentially uh, giving a child their entire life. Many of the lesions that kids are born with, they might not survive without surgical intervention. Um, so that's a pretty amazing thing to be able to do. And also to change a baby from being blue to being pink in a space of a few hours is also a pretty, pretty extraordinary thing. So. But you're never sure if you can do it or not. So you just embark on this pathway and see if it's something you have the technical ability to do. And uh, you come across the people who can train you to do it. And so it's a very, very long journey, um, but it was worth it. And it's certainly as challenging as I expected it to be for for many reasons, not just the technical uh, skills required. Right. And so cardiac surgery has changed a lot over the years, hasn't it? And um We're doing surgery that is more complex now and at a younger age. So what can you tell us about that and what has it meant for you as the surgeon? 
Uh, that's definitely very true. So uh, maybe 20 or 30 years ago, a lot of the lesions that we repair primarily, we used to do what we call palliate, so do an interim uh, measure to, I guess, balance uh, the circulation and allow the baby to grow. But there's a significant loss of uh, children uh, to interstage mortality in doing that. So I think we've shifted more and more to primary repair. But that then, uh, I think, puts uh, more challenge on us to be technically excellent in what we do and also able to repair lesions at a very small size and delicate tissues and for me it just takes longer because you've just got to be really gentle with everything and just take your time getting it right but it also requires everyone else in the operating theater and I think pre and post-operatively um, to come to that same level as well so uh, the, the heart-lung machine has evolved and perfusion strategies have evolved to be able to support smaller and less mature uh, babies. Um, the anaesthetists are amazing at what they, they do, being able to get lines in and support these kids. And then both in the neonatal intensive care unit and the pediatric intensive care unit, it's really a team-based approach to supporting these kids through the pre- and post-operative phase. Yeah, so we know that surgeons usually get all the credit, but it's nice for you there to sort of talk a little bit about how it is a huge team that gets a baby to surgery and then looks after them during and post the surgery. So that's good to acknowledge. Is there anything you wanted to expand on? Uh, I think one thing I often say is that cardiac surgery is a team sport. As a surgeon, you're just one part of a truly immense team, and that goes all the way from when the baby's born to when they're going home. There's perhaps up to 100 people involved in their care and in the operating theatre environment alone, probably about 10 or 11 people there uh, throughout the case. So you definitely can't do it in isolation and therefore the credit should go to the whole team, not not just any one individual. Yeah, so um, thanks for that. Um, an aspect that is particularly challenging and important for the neonatal team um, to get right is the preoperative care of the baby with hypoplastic left heart syndrome. And because we can't run through all the lesions in one podcast, I thought we might just focus on that today, if that's okay. Yeah, sounds good. So hyperplastic left heart syndrome, we know, is now mainly diagnosed antenatally, although occasionally still presents postnatally when the duct closes and the circulation collapses. And they require a NETS retrieval from the local hospitals into the children's hospital. Although rare... It is one area where there has been some advancement in more recent times. When I first started in neonatal surgical care, we were mostly palliating these babies. And now I would say that we are mostly offering palliative surgical care. Can you explain why the surgical care of the baby with hypoplastic left heart is considered palliative surgery? So unfortunately in these kids and many of what we call uh, other single ventricle lesions, uh, there's essentially only one ventricular pump. So we can't uh, actually cure these children with uh, heart surgery or even restore a normal circulation, but we can restore essentially a series circulation, um, shifting them from the parallel circulation that they're born with. So, but unfortunately, in doing that, and the end result is a Fontaine circulation, which we'll define a bit later, um, they, they unfortunately won't have completely normal exercise capacity relative to their peers. Their neurodevelopment probably isn't ever completely normal, um, and their life expectancy won't be normal, and that's very, something very hard to discuss with parents when these kids are born. We don't know how long they'll live, but... Many will only survive maybe into their 30s and 40s. 
Mm. And so that's opposed to other congenital heart surgery where you hope to cure the child of their lesion. And in some cases you can restore a near to normal life expectancy and certainly normal exercise capacity and many of them won't be as profoundly affected in terms of neurodevelopment because they don't remain remain cyanotic or blue for a long period of their life. Hmm. So when a baby is born with hypoplastic left heart, um, in the neonatal unit we know that we need to handle them with care and why we need to do that is a little bit about what I would like to unpack now. So the lesion involves mitral atresia, which leads to a lack of blood flow through the left side of the heart. And um, Yisha, you can correct me if I'm wrong anywhere along this pathway. But consequently, a small underdeveloped left ventricle is formed and then the left ventricular outflow is also impaired. So the right ventricle is largely responsible for the systemic output. So can you explain for us, is the right ventricle capable of this? Does the rudimentary left ventricle do any of the work? And in the normal heart, are the right and left ventricles embryologically similar? Um, So there's some very important fundamentals there that you've explained. So I think the key thing with hypoplastic left heart syndrome is Essentially, any of the structures in the left heart um, can be underdeveloped. And as you've mentioned, if one's underdeveloped, it has consequences for the development of all the others. So um, the spectrum includes uh, from severe mitral stenosis through to atresia and also severe aortic stenosis through to atresia. And you can have a constellation of either lesions. So you can have mitral stenosis, aortic atresia, or mitral atresia, aortic atresia. So any of them can be matched together. And and in keeping with that, the left ventricle doesn't develop. In some cases, there's a VSD, which allows the left ventricle to develop, but still not to the full extent. So in the vast majority of cases, the left ventricle doesn't contribute to the circulation. And so, all of the pulmonary venous return to the heart must go through uh, atrial septal defect to get to the right atrium. And sometimes some of these babies are born critically unwell with not a large enough uh, atrial septal defect to allow drainage of the pulmonary venous return and they have obstructive pulmonary venous return. Um, And there must be some, well, systemic blood flow is maintained in a duct-dependent fashion. So blood flow exits the right ventricle to the pulmonary artery and goes down the branch pulmonary arteries and down the duct. That, and the duct actually supplies both the descending and ascending aorta. One of the diagnostic features of hypoplastic left heart syndrome is the ascending aorta, the brain and the coronaries are uh, supplied by retrograde flow from the duct. Um, so that's a, we'll go into a bit more detail in a little while, but that's a quite fragile circulation for a period of time. Um, And as you mentioned, the right ventricle uh, is asked to do a lot. It has to provide the whole systemic circulation plus the pulmonary circulation. And uh, embryologically, the right ventricle and the left ventricle are quite different. The structure of the ventricle is different and the way it contracts is different, as is the fibre alignment. So the right ventricle was designed to pump into a low resistance, low pressure circulation. So as uh, as a fetus, that's the... I guess the placental circulation, the systemic circulation is very low resistance. When the baby's born in the normal circulation, that's the pulmonary vascular bed, very low resistance. The, the, um, the structure of the right ventricle is like a banana shape and it functions like a pumping bellows. It's meant to operate at a low pressure. So it's not meant to pump against a high resistance. And 
this is a problem we see some kids with right ventricular dependent single ventricle circulations get into the ventricle starts to fail because it can't pump against afterload the left ventricle is designed to pump against high afterload um, and it's it has a, a more circular arrangement of fibers and a circular contraction mode that's more efficient against high resistance so we know the coronary arteries are filled in diastole and we are giving prostaglandin to maintain the systemic blood flow through the patent ductus arteriosus and so the pulse pressure often widens a little and the diastolic pressure needs to be a little relaxed to allow blood flow into the peripheries but this puts the coronary arteries and their filling in diastole in a precarious position doesn't it given their different um, fibre arrangements and knowing that the coronary arteries are end arteries. Yeah, so I think the, the low diastolic pressure is certainly an issue in the pre-operative and, and post-delivery period. And whereas a normal um, full-term neonate operates with a diastolic pressure in the 30s, some of these babies will be sitting in the 20s. And that particularly, I guess, in a normal circulation impairs left ventricular perfusion because there's a high end diastolic pressure because it it's pumping against afterload and that's translated to the right ventricle in this situation because it's still pumping against a high afterload but it's not designed to be I guess receiving coronary flow at those low pressures. Um, this is particularly an issue for aortic atresia where the blood has to go from the duct back down retrograde through the proximal arch into a very small ascending aorta that's often very long so the ascending aorta can be as small as the diameter of a coronary, so 1.5, 2 millimetres, but still maybe about 2 or 3 centimetres long, and that's a long resistance pathway. So with low diastolic pressures, these babies ha can have quite significantly impaired coronary perfusion pre-op. And that also often isn't obvious in terms of ST segment depression. Sometimes it's just bradycardia or hypotension that you'll see when the coronaries aren't getting adequately perfused. So it's something to be very aware of the subtleties in presentation about. Hmm. So it's certainly a tricky balance for the treating team and the nurses caring for the baby. We need to be so mindful of balancing the ductal flow between the lungs where we want to maintain some hypoxic vasoconstriction to the blood vessels so that the ductus can preferentially flow to the descending aorta and provide blood supply to the lower half of the body. Um, so can you talk a little bit about why we don't treat these babies even if they're a bit desaturated why we don't treat them with oxygen so ideally we've we'd love the sats to be in the sort of high 70s low 80s but that's rarely the case because of all the things we've been talking about the the pulmonary vascular resistance is dropping there's no restriction of blood into the lungs compared to to blood flowing to the body and so the lungs start to get flooded and in fact over circulated and that results in the saturations being quite high because not only is the pulmonary venous saturation high, the systemic arterial saturation is high because the mixed venous sats are high. So um, the, treating that um, any desaturation with oxygen will actually cause a drop in pulmonary vascular resistance because oxygen is a pulmonary vasodilator, so it will actually shift more of the flow into the lungs and, and I guess take away more from the systemic flow, so it sort of steals blood from the systemic circulation. So actually desaturation is good um, and might also assist with some hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction so we're not flooding the lungs. Uh, so we tend to avoid oxygen and in fact in some cases 
add carbon dioxide or nitrogen to inhale gases to actually drop the FiO2 if possible. So Yisha, if we meet these babies in retrieval when they have presented postnatally, we often start 50 nanograms per kilogram per minute of prostaglandin. And then when the ductus is shown on the echo to be open in the surgical neonatal intensive care unit, we then drop it back to 10 nanograms per kilogram per minute. And the surgeons encourage this. Can you explain why, as a surgeon, the prostin running so high for long periods of time might be a problem? So um, what we find when we operate on babies who have been receiving intravenous prostin for a while is their tissues get quite edematous and boggy. It's hard to describe, but their tissue quality actually becomes somewhat impaired. So it's ideal if we can run the prostin at sort of 5 to 10 um, nanograms per kilogram per minute because then you just maintain ductal patency and in many of these cases the duct sort of I guess has signals to stay open because it's getting so much blood flow through it but you definitely need to make sure it's open if you present postnatally so we try and run the prostin as low as we can so that they don't get this tissue edema and poor tissue quality when we come to operating on them. Right so the neonatal team has gently cared for the baby and maintained that delicate balance in the circulation. We've allowed the baby to have a bit of colostrum and breast milk to enhance gut development, but not enough to put the baby at risk of necrotizing enterocolitis. And of course, we've kept the lactate at less than two millimoles at all times. The neurodevelopmental care team have ensured the baby has had some nurturing time with the family. The baby is almost ready for surgery. Now, the night before surgery, we often give high-dose, or we do give high-dose steroids prior to theatre. Why do we do that? And can you explain in simple terms what you do in the surgical repair of this complex lesion and why you stage it in three operations? Um, so that's a big question. Um, the, I'm not entirely sure why we actually still give steroids. So the steroids come from a period of maybe 10 or 15 years ago when the Norwood um, procedure was still, I think, um, being... Uh, finessed I guess and bypass techniques and the support of the cerebral circulation was still being modified so part of the reasoning was in some institutions the procedure still was performed under periods of circulatory arrest so the use of steroids is a neuroprotective maneuver for the brain during periods of circulatory arrest but it's rare that we circulatory arrest these babies um, and there's not been a proven benefit to using steroids so I think we're shifting further away from doing that um, in my mind at the moment, the main thing the steroids do is keep the blood sugar up, which is important because you're not measuring the blood sugar every five minutes during a long, a long operation. So I think it protects from hypoglycemia. But, and there is some theory about reducing the systemic inflammatory response to a big operation, but I must say we're sort of shifting more and more away from giving steroids. So in terms of what we do uh, with the operation, it follows the principles of many uh, single ventricle circulation operations in the neonatal period. So there's a few key principles, essentially four principles that we need to establish. One is to establish unobstructed systemic blood flow. The next is to establish a regulated source of pulmonary blood flow, so not too much or too little. The next is to ensure unobstructed pulmonary venous return. And then the fourth is to ensure adequate uh, intercirculatory mixing within the heart so that the pulmonary venous blood actually gets to the systemic circulation. So in the case of an operation for hypoplastic left heart syndrome, we do what's called a Norwood procedure as the first stage operation. 
And the key components of that are constructing a systemic outflow that allows perfusion to the coronary arteries, to the brain, and to the rest of the body. And how we do that is we join the small or atretic ascending aorta to the uh, main pulmonary artery to create what's called a Damus Castanzal anastomosis, or if there was any aortic outflow, a double barrel outlet to the heart and then reconstruct the aortic arch, enlarging it with a patch that's most commonly used as is most commonly pulmonary homograft, and then removing any ductal tissue from the proximal descending aorta because the ductal tissue will sort of scar and cicatrize. So to ensure the systemic outflow stays widely open. So that's the construction of an unobstructed systemic uh, pathway. And that involves uh, a period of interruption of blood flow to the lower half of the body and reduced blood flow to the brain. And so the, that part of the procedure is form, performed at 18 degrees Celsius with inflow through the uh, side, uh, a side graft on the innominate artery so we can perfuse the brain while we're not perfusing the rest of the body or the heart. The other component of the operation is doing an atrial septectomy. So we excise the atrial septum as much as possible to create a wide open communication between the pulmonary venous or left atrium and the right atrium. And then the last component is creating a form of uh, pulmonary blood flow. And most commonly we do that using what's called a Sarno shunt. So this is a restrictive, usually five millimeter Gore-Tex graft that's sutured to the front wall of the right ventricle and then into the uh, pulmonary artery bifurcation to supply both right and left pulmonary arteries. In some cases, we'll use a modified BT shunt, so a systemic to pulmonary artery shunt. Uh, and there's a trial back in the, uh, for probably about 10 years ago, called the single ventricle trial that looked at which of the two was a better strategy and demonstrated some survival benefit in some groups of patients using a Sarno versus a BT shunt but that it's mostly dependent on what your institutional experience is with looking after these babies. Asano setup is just a more stable circulatory setup because it, it's not constant flow throughout the cardiac cycle, whereas a BT shunt is systolic and diastolic flow. Uh, so they're the three main components of a Norwood procedure. It takes at least two thirds of the day to do. Um, we usually leave the chest open afterwards to allow the heart uh, some breathing space and to prevent any uh, I guess mechanical tamponade from having the chest closed and just let the baby recover for a few days and then come back and close the chest. Um, so that's also called a first stage procedure. So that, can, can I just clarify this? So the Sarno shunt goes from the right ventricle to the pulmonary arteries yeah. and the the systemic to pulmonary shunt goes from which artery to the pulmonary uh, arteries? We'd probably take it off the innominate artery and then down to the right pulmonary artery. And the reason for the innominate artery is firstly, we've used that vessel. We've signed a little side graft to that vessel to use as the arterial flow. So we can take the arterial cannula out of that and turn it down and attach it to the right pulmonary artery. It also tends to provide a fairly balanced form of arterial inflow. So not too much, not too little. Um, and the situations we'd use VT uh, uh, shunt in are probably, for, from my perspective, uh, um, lesions that require a Norwood procedure but have uh, a systemic left ventricle, so tricuspid atresia, because you don't want to put a hole in the, the left ventricle because of the attachments of the mitral valve, whereas the tricuspid valve has slightly more reliable attachments. So we know if we go on the front wall of the right ventricle with the Sarno, that's a pretty safe place. So 
BT shunts we'd probably only use maybe 5 or 10% of the time, whereas other units in the world might use them for all hyperplasts. And that's into the right pulmonary artery, and yep. so you're just expecting flow to go across to the left yeah. passively. So if they're confluent branch pulmonary arteries, we shouldn't have a problem with that, but there is often some ductal tissue in the origin of the left pulmonary artery, so there is a risk of proximal left pulmonary artery stenosis, which again is why Sano is nice, because it goes at the bifurcation of the two pulmonary arteries. Okay, so we've done stage one. Yep. What happens at stage two? So, um, as I say to all the parents, the baby will outgrow the Sarno over the course of about three months of growth and probably by the time they get to about five kilos. So then they need to change their form of pulmonary blood flow. So stage two is what we call a bidirectional glen, which is um, essentially the second and sometimes the first stage operation for any kid with a single ventricle circulation. So what we do with that operation is we can usually keep the heart beating. We need to use the heart-lung machine to provide oxygen into the circulation and to allow us to interrupt the flow to the lungs, but we remove the Sarno, and then we disconnect the superior vena cava from the atrium and suture it into the upper half of the right pulmonary artery. Again, we're relying on branch pulmonary artery continuity. So if there's any stenosis of the central branch pulmonary arteries, we also need to address that with augmentation at the same time. And then the benefit of setting this circulation up is it's um, passive venous flow into the lungs, so it's continuous blood flow, but at a sort of venous level pressure, it removes the volume unloading from the heart. So with the Sarno circulation, you've still got a parallel circulation. So the right ventricle is pumping to lungs and body. Now you take away the Sarno, and the pulmonary, uh, the flow into the pulmonary pathways in series because it comes from the SVC into the pulmonary arteries, then gets into the heart through the pulmonary veins and pumps out to the body. So that create that un volume unloads the heart and creates a more robust circulation. So mortality drops after you've had uh, the Glen operation. There's still an interstage mortality risk between first and second stage because of the issues with the parallel circulation and some volume loading and sometimes not enough pulmonary blood flow, sometimes too much. Um, so yeah, the Glen is the second stage operation. So the um, blood returning to the lungs is really coming mainly from the um, upper circulation, yeah. upper body circulation. Which yeah. is about 60% of the venous return to the heart in a baby because the head's such a large part of the, the body size yes, at that point. Yes. Yeah. And so then the final operation uh, is partly timed by growth. So the SVC will provide enough pulmonary blood flow probably until the child's about four to five years old where they start to have a fair bit of vertical height growth. And then uh, they need some augmentation of the pulmonary blood flow. So really the Fontan procedure is the completion of this set of operations and this involves redirecting the IVC blood straight up to the pulmonary arteries. Um, and that usually requires uh, insertion of a Gore-Tex uh, conduit between the IVC, which is disconnected from the right atrium, uh, sewn into the conduit, and then the conduit sewn to the inferior aspect of the right pulmonary artery. And then all the um, deoxygenated systemic venous blood goes directly into the pulmonary arteries without, in a passive way, without a pump, and comes back to the heart as oxygenated blood through the pulmonary veins and is pumped out to the body. So this is now a full series circulation um, with the effect of causing elevation of uh, systemic venous pressures to create a gradient into the lungs to get the blood flow into the lungs. 
um, and results in a step up in oxygen saturations almost to a normal level mm. unless they're fenestrated. Um, and a fenestration is a connection between that IBC to RPA conduit, a uh, connection between that and the right atrium, which acts as a blow-off valve if we've got concerns about the stability of the Hong-Han circulation. So that's a, it sounds like a really big undertaking for the baby and the family, and they almost need to live near the children's hospital for a period of time, don't they? Um, what are the outcomes from each stage of this surgical pathway, and what are the children's lives like after going through all that? Um, so if you've got a normal risk baby with, a, with hyperplastic left heart syndrome, so not any of the high-risk features, so very small birth weight, premature, a tricuspid valve that leaks there amongst some of the high risk features. If you come to it with low risk features, your survival at one year is somewhere between 80 and 90%. Um, and most of the risk is carried in that first year. There's uh, very few babies who die between, or children who die between Glen and uh, Fontan or between one year of life and the Fontan, although there is a small drop off over time. So survival to a Fontan for a baby born with standard risk profile is probably about 85%. Mm, um, the longer, longer term, again, probably at 10 to 15 years is probably still tracking about 80 to 85%. There's not too much drop off with time. And then it becomes a bit nebulous beyond that because uh, I guess from an Australian perspective, um, we've been doing sort of high volume Norwood surgery maybe only for the last 10 or 15 years. So we don't have much of a perspective beyond that. Um, but again, there's not too much of a drop off after that first year. If you have high risk features, let's say you've got the worst risk of all, you've got a intact or highly restrictive atrial septum when you're born, 50% survival to one year and not as many survive to the Fontan. So it's a difficult discussion to have in the early newborn period about um, proceeding with medical treatment given these kids will never have, or surgical treatment given these kids will never have a normal life expectancy nor, nor necessarily a normal life. And um, the great benefit of antenatal diagnosis is many of these parents will have, have had antenatal consultations with both a cardiologist and a surgeon and often the senior cardiac nursing staff, so they have a bit of a picture painted for them about what it will look like. It's individual for every single family, but it's a significant strain on the family and other kids in the family and financially. And as you've mentioned, many of these families will have to live either at the kids' hospital or very nearby for the first three to six months of life. Some who do very well, can actually get home to regional and remote areas, but there is again an interstage risk if they do that. So we usually uh, get them to think that they're going to have to plan to be near the hospital for that first three to six months of life. Mm. Okay, so um, you have talked a little bit about what we've improved in the last few decades, but what would you like to see improved or researched in the future? Where should paediatric cardiac surgery go to next, not only in our unit, but also in general? What boundaries do we need to push or do better to improve the lives of children with congenital heart disease? So I think a really positive shift that we've seen in the last 10 years or so has been a much bigger focus on the brain. And I think that's essential because um, 
many babies born with congenital heart disease have had uh, impaired brain development in utero and that relates to the alterations of blood flow in utero when the left heart hasn't developed normally and the aorta hasn't developed normally and also relates to the uh, more significant cyanosis seen in the blood that is perfusing the brain. So babies with uh, hypoplastic left heart syndrome are born with a brain that's probably at least four weeks less mature than a standard um, newborn. Um, and so we've been understanding more and more how to protect the brain, how to support the brain. Unfortunately, the brain acts as a filter for any kid with a single ventricle circulation. So because their heart's a common mixing chamber, anytime they have a procedure, anytime they have venous access, any tiny bits of air or clot or debris that gets into their circulation just goes to the brain. Their lungs aren't the filter like for the rest of us. So that's a pretty uneasy thought to have, it makes me concerned. And I don't think um, that's necessarily always at the forefront of everyone's thoughts, particularly in ICU where I guess just keeping the kid alive and doing all the things that we do every day is more more focus. But I think the brain is a re really key focus for cardiac surgery moving forwards. Um, I think also one evolving area of pediatric cardiac surgery is continuing to do things on smaller and less mature babies. And we know that babies born with uh, cardiac conditions do better if they have primary repair than palliation, but sometimes that's on the cusp of what we can do based on their size and what we can do inside the heart. And there are some lesions that we just can't deal with until they're a few weeks old. So I think that's one of the challenges we still need to meet, um, evolving cardiopulmonary bypass circuits so they're smaller, more finessed, so the amount of blood products that is required is less, and I think I guess the physiologic insult for surgery is less. Um, and then, you know, another big area is just, I think, antenatal screening and genetic screening and have a better, having a better understanding of the genetics of cardiac disease. So if we can prevent the baby from being conceived with congenital heart disease or complex or single ventricle congenital heart disease, then that might be a good thing. Um, so just tell me, is there anything we can do? You talked about the blood flow in utero um, causing problems for the baby's brain. Is there anything that we can do while the baby's in utero to improve that? Uh, I don't think there's very much. There are some units in the world looking at fetal interventions but the overall success rate is still pretty limited because of what you're trying to achieve with those interventions, particularly mm. in cases of aortic atresia. So um, as we often say to parents, I guess it, it is what it is. The baby has been born with this problem and this is what we've got to, to deal with. And it, often we'll be, I guess depending on the severity of the lesion, we'll be uh, a little bit more uh, sometimes paternalistic in our guiding of, of where we take the, patient, the, the parents on the journey because sometimes we can see the misery that lies ahead. Sometimes mm. we can look at it and go, no, this is totally fine. This will be a good fontan and probably a fairly good outcome. And, and we often forget, you know, there I've heard all sorts of stories of, you know, young adults doing medicine and law and stuff with HLH and fontans. So I think we always see sometimes I think are on the side of the bad side of it, but I think if we see, you know, substantial difficulties moving forwards, we try and prepare parents for that. And I think also take away some of the responsibility of the decision making because no parent's going to give up on their child. 
it's more about us, I think, guiding them along to a decision that is probably more appropriate because the child can't vote, unfortunately. Yeah. We have to make the, the best decisions for them. Yeah. I mean, I have read, read recently that um, there's been women with hyperplastic left heart syndrome who've actually given birth in the States. Yeah. Yeah. So... Um, there is a, there is hope for the future. I yeah, guess. definitely. And and a fontan's not a reason you can't have a pregnancy. I think we yeah we tend to see the negative side of it, but mm. there are a lot of people out there living very well with a fontan circulation and and very successfully. Yeah. Okay. So thanks, Hishay. So moving on from that, um, we do have to discuss the gen <laughs> the gender issue. Um, I don't think I'd be forgiven if I finished this podcast without talking about that. Um, the surgical fraternity in Australia has recently been coming face to face with some serious gender issues. So can you tell us, have you ever felt the sting of sexism in your career to date? And if so, how did you handle it? And how would you recommend young surgeons manage sexism in their workplace? So I guess I've really been fortunate. I've never focused on that as an issue and it's never really impacted me. I actually have to say mostly my gender has been an asset um, and what what I often say to Ooh, my <laughs> what I often say to my adult patients and parents is, you know, we we just have, I don't know we're a little bit more tidy and we have a bit more OCD and attention to detail. Um, I think we bring something different to surgery that the I guess male surgeons don't sometimes. So um, yeah, it, it hasn't been an issue at all. My sense throughout all of my training and and later on is that. If you have a good work ethic, you're passionate about what you do, you put the effort in, uh, no one's, I think, going to use your gender against you. It's just about contributing the equivalent amount in the workplace. And I think certainly the College of Surgeons have worked towards, um, I guess in some ways, making it a bit more of a level playing field. It's possible to job share now, which it wasn't in the past. I've got colleagues who are uh, surgeons in other specialties who have trained successfully um, surgeons who have four and five kids and it hasn't you know, impacted their ability to work in any way. So I think everyone's individual. Remembering there's still not that many female surgeons in all the specialties, I think you've just got to make it your own pathway and find out a way of making it work for you with the support services you've got. I, I made a decision uh, quite a few years ago that I wasn't going to have kids because I give 110% to my work and I would feel compromised then. I wouldn't be able to do that. So mm. I, I'm happy to say that to people that you can't, you know, there's this philosophy of, oh, you can have everything. Actually, you can't have everything. You've got to compromise and you've just got to choose where the compromises are. And as long as you're happy, it, it doesn't really matter. And as long as those around you are happy, that I think that's that's the main thing. Mm. Would you say, though, that you perhaps had to work harder than the male colleagues to, to I make your mark? I think, I think just as hard. I think you just get recognised for what you do and the effort you put in. Um, I think some other people I've trained with are, are much more efficient <laughs> in what they do. I have to put long hours in to achieve what I need to and work really hard when I'm studying. But I think it's more, you know, your, your passion and, and your skill and your determination stand out more. I think, yeah, it's, and, and you can easily shine above a male colleague for, yeah, it's, I, I don't see it as an issue. And I think one of the problems these days is if you really focus on gender, it starts to define you. 
I think disengaging from that discussion and actually just approaching uh, work and training in a merit-based way is the most uh, most appropriate uh, strategy. Hmm. Yeah, that seems good advice. Um, thanks, Yishe. Um So now, Yishe, we all watch you work so hard every day and always with a smile and always with good humour. I've never seen you lose your temper ever. It has um, happened <laughs> many times. <laughs> anyway, we're all very glad that you decided this career path and I'd like to thank you so much for having a neonatal conversation with me today. Oh, no, no problems at all. It's actually been a pleasure. If you've enjoyed this podcast or have questions, please head to the webpage www.neonatalconversations.com where there are links to the references used in this podcast and where we might be able to continue the discussion. You can also leave feedback or commentary on the Facebook page, Neonatal Conversations, or on Twitter, at Neo Conversation. We would really appreciate any feedback you might have. Thanks so much for listening, and thank you all for caring for the critically ill newborn. Thank you.